Hi, um, I'm Peter Tripe. I'm Secretary of the Life Assurance Committee, which is hosting this session all this afternoon. And we're very proud to have David Hay uh, speaking on ORSA here this afternoon. Um, and I'm really sort of impressed. It's probably one of the largest turnouts I've seen at a sessional event ever. So I think it's a reflection both of you know, what a hot topic ORSA is at the moment, as well as you know, David's stature, I'm sure, has something to do with that. And I'm sure it's got nothing to do with the fact that uh, February is the closing date for getting your CPD in for last year. Uh, so just in respect of that, please, if you haven't signed the register when you came in, uh, don't forget to sign that on the way out. Um, just before I give introductions uh, to David, I just want to check whether our technicalities are working. So um, I don't know if, uh, can Cape Town send sound to us at this stage? Right. But maybe if the Cape Town audience, could you all sort of wave if you can hear me okay? Okay, so that looks great. Um, maybe if there's any pause or interruption in the technicalities, well, assuming we can see you, uh, try and wave if you don't hear the sound, and maybe David can pause, until it, uh, because I have been warned that there might be a few dropouts during the talk. Okay, so just quickly a bit of background on David. Uh, David is a UK qualified actuary with over 25 years experience in life office risk, actuarial management and strategic roles. He joined Deloitte as a partner in the UK um, almost two years ago from Standard Life where um, he was the actuarial function holder for a number of years uh, for the UK and Europe. He's well known in the actuarial profession and is currently president of the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. As the Group Finance Risk Director at Standard Life, David was responsible for developing and maintaining Standard Life's economic risk management framework and overseeing the implementation of financial risk aspects across the group. In addition to his actuarial function holder responsibilities in Standard Life, David was a member of the ERM committee, proposed the ICA basis and oversaw the financial risk management framework for the UK and Europe uh, subsidiaries. Uh, since joining Deloitte, uh, David leads the regulatory and assurance pillar of the actuarial practice. He also leads the development of the operational risk modelling proposition, uh, working with operational uh, risk experts uh, across Deloitte. So as I said, uh, I think certainly David is uh, eminently sort of capable uh, and I think will be a fascinating talk from him. Uh, just quickly before I hand over, practicalities of make sure everybody switched off cell phones and stuff. And then at the end of it, there'll be an opportunity for us to ask questions, both on this side as well as from Cape Town. Uh, sorry, I neglected to mention that uh, Doe de Jong will be co-chairing uh, on the Cape Town side. And Doe has a couple of roving mics. And I think there will be, well, uh, he'll be able to sort of indicate if there's a question on that side. And we will just pause on this side uh, until that person gets the roving mic. At least that's the theory of how it's going to work. Uh, we'll see how it, uh, how whether operational risk got in the way of that. Anyway, um, David, thank you very much. Well, thanks very much, everybody, and hello, Cape Town. Uh, and um, yeah, I uh, I hope this is going to be useful. I feel slightly worried that I'm just going to show you that we're asking exactly the same questions in the UK and across Europe that you guys are asking here. Uh, but hopefully we might have some answers along the way or maybe some, share some insights. 
Uh, I've also got a member of the Institute and Faculty Council sitting in the front row, Marjorie, who will be keeping me on my toes and make sure that I'm uh, keeping to um, proper use of our lovely new brand. I'm actually going to be using some slides that uh, some of my colleagues back in Deloitte produced for me. Um, but the reason I've got this nice front piece is partly to show off the new logo of the Institute and Faculty, which is classic with a modern twist, I am told, by our marketing gurus. Um, <laughs> But uh, we quite like it, and uh, so we've now got nice business cards with gold crests, and they go down really well in China and Southeast Asia. Um, the reason you've not seen me before is that um, it's not that we don't care about South Africa, not at all. It's just that we fought over who would get to come here, and I lost, and I got Hong Kong, Australia, and China instead. So instead of getting up Table Mountain, I got to walk in the Great Wall of China, and got to see the pandas, but I shouldn't be saying this because it's meant to sound very onerous, all the travel of the, uh, of the president. Uh, but yeah, just I'll probably start with a few words about the Institute and Faculty because some of you are, are members and very important people. Uh, we've got about 25,000 members throughout the world, uh, about uh, 11, or 11 or so thousand fellows and the rest students. Uh, about two-thirds of the, the well actually that's not quite, a, that's a student number. Let's say more than, um, more than half our members are overseas. It's, it's around about 50%. It's about a third of the, of the fellows and well over 50% of the students are overseas. And so within the institute and faculty we really have to kind of think internationally because we are an international body. Uh, we're not trying to, you know, exert undue influence in different countries. So for example, when you guys wanted to set your own exams, that's good news. We think that's success when a, when a body wants to stand on its own. Um, but what we've got in some parts of the world, the, the actual profession is still relatively young uh, and probably needs some of the, the more established actual societies to work with them. And so that's particularly why I was given China and Southeast Asia so that we can really work in partnership with the, the Chinese profession and some of the other ones there to help them get themselves uh, more established um, and, uh, you know, and learn from each other. Because it's interesting that what you then see as you travel around is that you know, everybody's moving in roughly the same direction on insurance regulation. And I suppose one of the slightly scary things is that wherever any, any regulator I've met, whether it was in Australia, Hong Kong, China, whatever, if I mention the names of the guys in the PRA or what was the FSA, they know them, you know. And I suppose Ian Marshall is a, he used to be on the life board of the, in the UK. Um, you, know, you know, he'll be able to confirm, you know, these guys are all meeting together discussing ideas. So it's no surprise that you've got an ORSA-type process uh, North America, I think Canada's introduced an ORSA-type process. They've got an ORSA-type process being discussed in China. You know, various parts of the world, everybody's thinking about ORSA uh, and what's the best way to run insurance companies. And then everybody's looking at risk-based capital and what's the best way of introducing that so that, you know, uh, to quote Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, make the punishment fit the crime. Uh, you want your capital to fit the risks of your institution. And I'm now well off piece from my slides, but um, one of the interesting articles, if anybody who's really looking for CPD, well, you can get copies of this afterwards because there's a lot, of, a lot of busyness in some of them, uh, but it's there more for, re for your reference than anything else. Uh, so you can read them. That'll get you an hour or two more. But also, if you want something else just to meet your requirements, can I recommend what's called the Sharma Report, which was a publication about 2002, and you'll find that on the EOPA website. 
And if you find your way through, it was actually a SEOPS paper, which was when, before EOPA was an authority, and it was just a committee of regulators. Um, they had, uh, the, but, if you, you know, but if you go on to EOPA publications and look at calendar date, I think the very first one is the Sharma report. If it's not, it's the second, and the first one is a report by a guy called Muller, who did a working party that, that sort of fed in, led the way to Solvency II. And then Sharma's working party was one of the first things that the Solvency II project in its infancy did. And this was them looking at what's the toolkit that regulators need to have. And so Sharma, who worked for the FSA in those days, formed a committee of representatives of a lot of European supervisors, including somebody called Gabriel Bernardino. The reason why I mention that is he's the current chairman of EOPA, and he's the guy that invented the ORSA, or at least would, I think he probably will take a lot of credit for it, but it was his, he led the Pillar 2 working party um, of Solvency II before he got elevated to his role in EOPA. That was what he was doing, and this is where a lot of the Solvency II ORSA thoughts came from. But you can actually, if you look in the, the, the Paul Sharma with the Working Party paper, what they were looking at is why do insurance companies go bust or have exciting times uh, and almost go bust? And they looked at lots of confidential stuff from throughout Europe. And then they built something like 20 representative case studies. They're not actually the real thing, but they're elements of the real thing to illustrate stuff. And basically they came out with the astonishing recognition that insurance companies get into trouble not because of capital per se, but because of the decisions that their management make. And so, of course, what they're then saying is insurers need regulatory tools to keep an eye on management. We call that intrusive supervision in the UK. I don't know what adjective you use to describe it here, but that's the flavor of insurance supervision these days because folk realize that it's what people are doing that's really important. Though that hasn't actually lifted the, the pressure off all the fun and games around the calibration of internal models uh, and the calibration of 1 and 200 stresses for the in, in individual capital assessment in the UK. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I sometimes like to remind supervisors that in fact Pillar 2 is the important thing rather than Pillar 1, but you can have long, long drawn out discussions over Pillar 1 and the, the, the calibration of these things. And, uh, you know, I suppose if I was a regulator, I'd want to have them too. But still, that was a real aside. Uh, Peter's now even more worried that I won't get through my slides. Uh, there, aren't, there aren't, I mean, I think there's, there's not that, well, there's only a few slides I want to really spend a lot of time on, and the rest are going to be just enjoy the flow, and, um, and you'll have them for your reference. But anyway, what I thought we would do is, um, for those of you who have not been following the blow-by-blow -blow accounts of, of Solvency 2, across Europe, because uh, I realize not all of you need to, um, but we'll have a little uh, sort of a, a personal view of why it took so long, but why we're on the road now. And then we'll look into the development of ORSA. And we've got various different publications on ORSA. And it's interesting just to see the, how the words slightly change and the emphasis as regulators. I mean, they're essentially, I'm not quite making it up as they go along. I think that's being a bit unkind, but this is all new ground for everybody and we're all kind of learning. So we'll talk a wee bit about that and then look at what's going on beyond Europe in terms of the International Association of Insurance Supervisors Comframe initiative. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the Financial Stability Board. Um, so uh, I won't tell you the whole talk on that slide, but uh, otherwise we could, um, that wouldn't get you enough CPD for your February deadline. So, Okay, setting the scene. Um, 
I had to, one of the attractions of becoming the president of the institute and the faculty was that I thought I would be the president when Solvency 2 came in. But uh, that doesn't show much for my judgment or risk awareness. To be honest, I probably knew it was a very, very long shot. Um, but it certainly was, because uh, Solvency 2 should have been in quite a while ago. Um, and what then happened was it got postponed once, and then it had to get postponed again. And so what we had, you know, this in September 2012, well, this was the, the sort of the postponing it, I think that was at least one again in there, uh, and it got postponed to start on the 1st of January 2014, though I think at that stage probably nobody believed it was going to happen. So then we had to have another quick fix directive to push it back further. And the issue here is that um, Solvency 2, the Act of Parliament, was actually passed in um, uh, 2009. And in fact, it was. It was October 2012 was the date. That's right. And in fact, you know, coming up, you know, once you were in 2012, nobody thought that Solvency 2 could be implemented on the 1st of October 2012. It would have been quite a problem to implement it because people actually hadn't agreed all the detail of it. Uh, because in the, in the European financial services world, legislation is done on a principles-based approach. Uh, it was called the Lamfalusi process which sounds a wee bit like something that vets or farmers do, but in fact it was named after Baron Lamfalusi, who had been asked to look into a way of making legislation more, more, adapted, uh, more adaptive and allow it to be changed more quickly. And uh, he came up with the recommendation that you needed a committee to make things be more flexible. That's not normally what happens in insurance companies, um, but that was what they tried in Europe, that they would have these committees, that was what CEOPS was, and there was a committee of insurance and pensions uh, supervisors, a committee of banking supervisors, a com committee of investment supervisors. And the idea was that they would work with the European Commission, if you like, the sort of the civil service, uh, the, the, the administrative and policy support of, of the parliament that they would work with the Commission to flesh out the detail and Parliament would agree the high-level principles. And Solvency II was the first Lamfalusi directive. And things went reasonably okay through the, getting the directive. There was lots of, of, of fighting amongst whether it should be an economic capital basis or not. Should it be 1 in 200? Should it be 100% Solvency? All this type of stuff. And it was kind of felt that um, you know, you know, economic capital had won in terms of the 2009 directive. What I think people hadn't realized was uh, that the Lamfalusi process, when you're fleshing out all the detail after you've got the principles in place, boy, do you have an opportunity to reopen all the battles that you thought you'd lost. So, of course, what has been happening is all of these were being reopened. And they were being reopened at a time when you know, the, the financial crisis had shown that long-term guarantees and market-consistent pricing don't always go well together. And so if you've got com you know, governments who are really very conscious of what it will do to their financial markets if you slap on lots of extra market-consistent capital, you know, you know, they're now in a good position in, so in a Lamfalusi approach to try and change the directive or at least argue for an implementation which is more akin to what they wanted originally. What also then happened was that um, it was perceived during the, the credit crisis that um, the regulatory regime across Europe wasn't good enough uh, because it um, hadn't reacted quickly enough. And part of the problem was that we had these committees of supervisors rather than actually authorities with real power to do something about them. So that then 
meant that, so there was this other, the, the la, la, sorry, try again, Lourdesier, Frenchman, he led a working party and he had the, the Lourdesier reforms, which turned the committees into authorities. But the trouble was that happened after the Sovereignty 2 Directive had been approved. So that then meant the Sovereignty 2 Directive had to be opened up again. And of course, that's great news to people who didn't like the principles to start with. If we're going to open, the le open up the legislation, we can go back on economic capital. So that's really what's been going on in Europe for years. This sort of, and to compound issues, there were then sort of rivalries between how much power the Commission would have and how much power the Parliament would have and things like that. So that all compounded together to quite a long-running uh, process of trying to find a way through this that was sufficiently economic capital to please the people who were at that end of the spectrum, but had enough, um, uh, you know, um, anti-procyclicality, for want of a better word, and transitional arrangements and various other um, adjustments to please the folk who were at the other end of the spectrum. And so that was really what happened uh, at the end of 2013, when uh, we finally, it was actually November 2013, when finally uh, there was a compromise package produced, uh, which then is going to go to the European Parliament uh, in a month or two's time. I mean, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that it will get voted down, in which case 2016, just forget, I don't know when Solvency 2 will come in then. But I think the kind of the general feeling is 1st of January 2016 won't just be the day that SAM comes into force, it's going to be the day that Solvency 2 comes into force. Solvency 2, at least in name, but for a fair amount of the balance sheet, there'll be transitional measures, so it'll be Solvency 1, basically, you'll still have for some of the liabilities. But certainly the front book, uh, new business from 2016 onwards, will be on Solvency 2. EOPA had got themselves into an interesting situation, though, because at the end of 2012, when it looked like Solvency 2 was being kicked into the long grass by some people, EOPA had written to the Commission to say, don't get rid of this, because Solvency 1 isn't fit for purpose. We need to do something about it. Well, if you've got the regulator saying the current regime isn't good enough, they've put themselves in a very interesting position. They need to be seen to be improving the situation, uh, the, the regime. And so what EOPA then consulted on during 2013 was a series of um, guidelines to prepare the way for Solvency 2. And, uh, and, and, what and so what we've actually got is from now, from the 1st of January 2014, we have a reasonable amount of Solvency 2, Pillar 2 stuff actually now mandatory on European insurance companies. Basically, the way it works is the guidelines are mandatory on the local supervisors who then need to implement them. But you're not allowed to say that Solvency 2 is being implemented early. These are preparatory measures to help you prepare for Solvency 2. But as you'll see, if I ever get to those slides, I hope I will eventually, um, that there is a fair amount of um, similarity, shall we say, between some of the Pillar 2 requirements in the directive and the, the, the detailed text and what we've now got actually applying now to European insurers. So maybe the good thing is ORSA has beaten SAM by two years, but it's not called ORSA, as you'll see in a minute or two. Article 45. There are certain numbers. You want to sound really knowledgeable 
about um, uh, Solvency 2, there's a couple of articles that you should know, and one of them is Article 45, and this is ridiculously small type. I can't even read that there, let alone you at the back. But, but essentially, Article 45 is the one that introduces the concept of ORSA and what was going to be required. And uh, this own risk and solvency assessment has got to cover various things. It's got to cover the overall, it's a holistic thing. It's got to cover the overall solvency needs, taking into account the specific risk profile and the business strategy of the undertaking. And this is really coming right back to Sharma. You know, it's the management who are going to do stupid things, so we need to have a risk framework that's picking, you know, encompassing the business model that they are following and the risks that they are running so that you've got um, something which is very particular to the needs of that institution because that's the best way to give policyholders security. And what you want then is that there's this assessment on a continuous basis that there is enough capital in the firm uh, to cover the, the Pillar 1 capital requirements. But also, because the Pillar 1 capital requirements for a lot of people are this standard formula approach, then they want to make sure that companies are aware of their risk profile relative to the sort of the average that was being used for the SCR, uh, and don't have people sort of blindly following formulae and things without actually thinking about you know, the risk profile of their particular business. <laughs> Um, so, that, so what happened was that was um, these were ideas that were coming out of CEOPS actually before they got into the directive. CEOPS had been, um, you know, publishing this quite a bit. They'd had a, an issues paper to promote debate, uh, and when you look at the the principles that that issues paper set out, it's all very much along the same lines. And I presume I haven't actually. I must confess, this is terrible. I have not read all the SAM material on ORSA. Uh, but Ian, if you want to send it to me, I will look at it and swoon at the wisdom um, but, and see how closely you've copied, sorry, no, how closely you have, you have um, collaborated with uh, uh, the folk at Waring Canary Wharf or, or in, um, in Frankfurt, whatever. Okay, but here are five key principles and you know, these are probably not bad principles to have for a risk framework. The first thing is it's the firm's responsibility. And actually, if I'm allowed to say it, um, you know, I think it is very tempting when you work for a firm to want to know what the regulator expects of a thing like the ORSA. But actually, if I can sort of keep in my ivory tower for a second, in fact, it'd be quite nice if firms decided what was appropriate for them and then the regulators accepted that. It's that last bit which is probably slightly wishful thinking. This is recorded. Maybe I should not be saying things like this. But sometimes it's more the, the discussion with the regulator and almost sort of having to, to demonstrate that what you've got is adequate for them. And that can be quite a healthy tension, of course. But, you know, what, what we're seeing here is a bit of a shift away from reliance upon the regime to reliance upon the individuals running companies to be comfortable about what they are doing. Uh, and that we've had that in the UK since the early 2000s when this, the ICA came in. Many of you probably worked on, on that for your companies. Um, and I remember when I was taking uh, the then chairman of Standard Life through it. Um, and in those days, I was the assistant to the AFH. And I would got the job of taking Brian Stewart, who was the then chairman. He was from a Scottish in Newcastle and Diageo. I mean, he was from a, a drinks background, uh, but was the chairman of Standard Life and a really very astute businessman. And his immediate reaction was, you know, that this was, you know, shifting the responsibility from the supervisors onto the management of companies and their boards in particular for the financial soundness of institutions. 
And maybe if you'd had to face a Treasury Select Committee in the UK as a supervisor to talk about how you'd supervised equitable life, you might want to, to place more responsibility on boards. And but actually I can't help thinking that it's a good thing because really that's what boards are for and that's what managers are for. And actually that's what actuaries are for as well, in actually being able to take responsibility and make wise judgments. So what you've got here, that, so the first key thing is, you know, the ORSA's responsibility of the firm and it should be signed off by the, the, the board, you know. Uh, another we aside, not every side will have all these asides, you'll be glad to know, but a um, little aside, I qualified, how many of you did the faculty exams by the way originally? Hey, there you go, brothers and sisters, that's it. Okay, I must confess I changed my letters to FIA at the merger to try and show that I was really embracing the new. Not, any, but not many other people did, I'm afraid, I still get chip about that from folk in Edinburgh, but that was my mistake. Um, but I still remember, in the, when you were sitting the exams that I sat, what you'd find for the life office exam it would say, you know, a friend of yours has said discuss. And that was code for they're wrong and you can tell them. <laughs> and then you'd have a director of your insurance company has said discuss. And that was code for they're wrong but tell them nicely. <laughs> um, but we're in a different regime now, you know, it's not the great and the good who run life companies anymore or on the boards, it's people who actually know what they're doing. And there's re certainly in the UK, and I would imagine here too, really high standards are being put upon boards of insurance companies, and maybe in many cases rightly so. But you see that enshrined in order, so that's how I get back to my topic, you'll be glad to know. So let's, we're on the principles. So what you've got here is, it's the board and the management, it's their document, it's got to cover all the material risks. It's got to be based on an adequate measurement process and, and good assessment processes. In other words, it's got to be valid and, and reliable. It's got to be forward-looking, uh, building on the business plans of the organization, and there's got to be good documentation. Now, in many cases, that feels a wee bit like the financial condition report that many of us grew up with. Uh, only it might have had longer projections than you see in a typical ORSA, uh, but also it didn't cover the governance regime and it wasn't the sort of the whole picture of the framework that the ORSA is giving. Uh, but, you know, it's a, you know, I think um, those people who had good FCRs are probably well on the way to having good ORSAs, in my view. Though, of course, that's implying that the ORSA is just a report, whereas, of course, the ORSA is more than that, it's a process and it's almost a mindset. So here are some of the high-level implications that folk were thinking about. When this first was being talked about, 2008, 2009, you know, folk were starting to think, right, what is this going to mean? Well, it's going to mean that the ORSA is going to cover governance. Now, the FCR didn't use to summarize who did what and what the decision-making um, and risk-taking. It was probably the sort of thing that was shown to, you know, either confirm that what was going on was fine or to flag up that there were problems going forward and just the evolution of the balance sheet. Um, the ORSA has got to be much more central to what's going on. The process of actually producing it has caused a fair amount of discussion. Uh, and also what methodology you're going to use. How are you going to project one in 200 capital and make it worthwhile numbers? You know? um, is that going to be an IT problem or is it just some good old actuaries with spreadsheets and lots of evenings to spare? Um, and then you know, how do you make the report uh, really good and communicate it well to to your board and to the, the senior management within your organization.
And Deloitte, a couple of years ago, did a survey of how you know, a number of large clients were viewing Orson. This is a UK survey, so I'm sorry I'm not showing you South African data. But it's quite interesting that you know, in 2011, folk were still getting their heads round what Orsa meant. Uh, and some folk were thinking that they're going to produce it monthly. Wow. Most of the people we spoke to were thinking that they would uh, produce it, you know, it would be a yearly document. Um, some of them were thinking that they would try and do it as part of the year-end process. Good luck to them. Or else they had great systems. I mean, in Standard Life, we were able to do our Pillar 1 numbers, the Solvency 1 numbers, we could do in about 20-something days from the UK and Europe insurance company. They then went to Group, who spent a similar amount of time consolidating them with others. I'm not quite sure why groups always need much more time to consolidate than the business units needed to do the numbers. Sorry, maybe I shouldn't say that. But that's, a, that's me being a business unit person from the past. But to do the ICA, the ICA took about two or three months to do, you know. Um, so the thought of doing all of that and projecting it forward within the year-end process, well, that was just beyond us at that time. But folk were thinking, maybe this is what they were going to do. Um, and then other people thought, no, I'm going to align it more to the planning process and do it in a sort of a quarter three thing. Um, what was quite interesting was when people were asked what sort of components would they see in the ORSA, you know, lots of people went for the obvious things about capital and risk identification and the risk appetite and all this sort of thing. But not everybody thought it would cover the business strategy. I think if you did that now, everybody would say, well, it's clearly got to be involving the business strategy. Because if it doesn't, it's, it's not really hitting the mark at all. So if you guys are wondering, you know, what does ORSA mean? What's it going to look like? Yeah, well, you know, we've all been asking these questions. And it takes a wee while to realize exactly just what is the... The, the shape of the hole that Orsa is trying to fill. And actually, where is it, if you like, almost a rebadging of what you would have been doing anyway. And certainly the line that I took when I was at AFH and Standard, I used to do a financial condition report. But I didn't call it that because that didn't sound relevant enough. And, and those of you who read the Actually magazine, if you're still fellows of ours, you'll see that relevance is a key word for me. Um, and uh, so I wanted to make it more relevant. So I actually called, I called it, um, I talked about the financial dynamics of the business. That was really what I was talking about in the FCR. And so that's what I used to call, call my report. And, and then eventually my last ever FCR, I actually called it an ERM report. I didn't call it an ORSA uh, because I wanted to, because I realized it wasn't a full ORSA because I wasn't giving all the, the sort of the, the reference documents about governance and things. And in fact, the CRO uh, in Standard, uh, then another actually good friend of mine, Colin Ledley, Colin's view was that the ORSA was actually almost going to be a reference document that you would have uh, that would contain all the key coverage, sorry, of the material. And, uh, you know, it might be 100 pages or more and be some sort of bound volume sitting on the shelf. What I had produced was probably 30 PowerPoint slides that summarized the document, summarized the governance, summarized the decision-making process, but felt a much more sort of dynamic thing really about where you are now and where the business plan was projecting to take you. Um, in fact, what I think now probably come as a sort of a combination of the two is what, what is sort of being used. And in fact, Sana chose to call it ORSA. I lost the battle of calling it ERM reports. They decided to call them ORSAs, uh, and that's fine. Um, but of course, uh, it's not just an ORSA report, it's an ORSA process. And uh, 
you know, what, what we'll talk about later on is actually, you know, ORSA at, at this stage was being used as the all-encompassing framework to describe how you run a business. Um, for a while, certainly the FCA, uh, or it was the FSA in those days, sorry, the FSA probably aided and abetted by CEOPS and EOPA, or maybe it was the other way around, because quite a few FSA staff were seconded to EOPA. You know, internal model was being used in a very broad sense to describe not just the, the calculation tool, not just the, the approach to thinking about your balance sheet, but actually internal model was the whole risk management process. Um, that didn't go down too well with the industry because they thought, if I'm going for internal model approval and it's basically the whole way I think and run my business and I have to get regulatory approval every time I change that, that doesn't sound too helpful. And so internal model definition tended to get a little bit reduced where now it's now more just about the sort of the, the assessment of the capital calculation, not just the, the, the tool itself, but the whole process of assessing it. Um, but now the new all-encompassing phrase is risk appetite framework. That's the new dominant theme of describing how, you know, the, the whole holistic view of running an insurance company. Um, so ORS has now got overtaken by risk appetite framework to a certain extent, but we're still left with it as a regulatory requirement. And as I was saying, it's not just a regulatory requirement in Europe from 1st of January 2016. ORSA's here now. But of course, it's not called ORSA because you're not implementing solvency too early. It's got a really great title. It's called a forward-looking assessment of own risks. <laughs> um, I really wanted it to be called the own risk and capital assessment because then you could have had a whale of a time <laughs> with the report. Sorry. That was... That, that's the worst joke, I think, okay? Um, but anyway, so what we've now got is we've got the forward-looking assessment of own risks, and that's got to be done. You've got to do one this year on Solvency 1 numbers, and you've got to do one next year on Solvency 2 numbers. Now, of course, in some parts of Europe, the Solvency 1 numbers are very stable. If you're using equivalent of book value of assets and the premium basis to value the liabilities, then your stress tests won't tell you very much. So I'm not quite sure what those countries are doing in terms of the stress testing. Uh, maybe they're doing sort of runoff projections instead, because that might tell you a little bit more. Uh, but what we've got anyway, uh, and certainly in the UK, th this is fine. You know, people have been doing this because our regulator has been pushing us down this route for, for quite some time. We've been doing one in 200 calculations for the regulator for 10 years. We've been required to project them for, I think, about six or seven years. Um, so, you know, we probably think this is not too onerous, and in fact, it's quite a helpful preparation just to make sure that you're getting, uh, getting ready for Solvency 2 in 2016. And of course, the forward-looking assessment, it's not just quantitative, you know, it's not just about numbers, because some risks aren't really best dealt with by modeling them in terms of numbers, they're better dealt with by thinking about them and the implications and, uh, and what sort of scenarios can be developed. Uh, but here are some key points from the final guidelines, and there's another document you could read if you want, and you'll see those on the, the OPA website, and you can see if you're really a glutton for punishment, then you can read the PRA's document consulting all of that. Um, when we had the new regulators, one of the things the PRA said is that they wouldn't be producing as much paper. Uh, but I think uh, Solvency 2 is probably making up for that because there's been an awful lot of paper produced on these over the last year. Um, but hopefully it'll lead to, to useful developments in terms of insurance companies' uh, oversight and management. Okay, but here's the same sort of themes. This is ORSA, but just by another name. 
consistent with the nature, scale, and complexity of the risks in the business. The board's got to take an active part. Now, that's actually slightly different because previously the board just had to review and approve it. But now we're actually looking for the board to take an active part in all of this. And I will remember, I used to do um, um, prospective non-executive director coaching interviews. And one of the things that one of the people I was speaking to, they were livid because they'd been asked, you know, what their view of the illiquidity premium was by the regulator in their interview. That's quite interesting. I mean, this was an annuity writer, so I mean, I'm afraid I could see the regulator's point in all of this because you know, a couple of years ago, that was one of the key issues in solvency too, and it was potentially very significant for firms' balance sheets. So if you're an annuity writer and you don't know, you haven't formed a view of the liquidity premium and you're sitting on the board, then are you really best placed to judge the reliability of the balance sheet and the earnings numbers coming off it? Um, but certainly, you know, so I think boards are being expected to be quite involved in all of this and that's good news for some of the people on the board and probably bad news for some of the actuaries reporting to the board uh, and the CROs as well because you're going to have a fair amount of, of discussion and challenge. But here we are, the FLA is as much about the process as about the report. So we haven't given up this notion that ORSA is really this mindset, it's a way of thinking about running your firm back to the Sharma, it's how management runs things that's key. And we've got this notion of two reports. You've got the one that goes to the board, and then you've got the one that goes to the regulator. Now, we haven't really seen how that will work out yet in Britain, because the regulator can ask to see anything that goes to the board. So what the point is of sanitizing the report that went to the board before you send it to the regulator two weeks later, I'm not quite sure. So uh, I don't know how that will play out yet. That will be an interesting thing to see. Uh, and then we've got the point of it. You know, there's quant stuff. You know, the economic capital, looking at what you need. Um, and of course, it's your decision on what you need. Nobody's telling you how much you need to hold as the buffer over the regulated requirement. And that then creates some questions about, you know, how do you go about deciding your risk appetites and your limits and your capital coverage and things like that? And we'll touch on that uh, in a few minutes. Okay, um, we'll probably, I've probably said quite a bit about this already. Um, so those are some slides for reference, and you can read them. So, where are we? ICAP, banking capital. It's funny, um, there's probably starting to be more of a recognition uh, that what's good for banks is not necessarily able to be lifted and dropped into insurance. Um, we've been sort of talking about the danger of that for many, many years. But I think when you start to look at, um, you know, there's, very, there's consistent themes coming out. Uh, but what was quite nice was that, you know, when the, the FSA was first set up in the UK, um, it was set up in the wake of, uh, you know, the equitable life disaster, I suppose you could call it. And to a certain extent, there was this perception that, well, you know, if only insurance companies understood themselves as well as banks did, then wouldn't we be in a great place? Um, and we've probably changed that now over the last five years and recognising that, in fact, you know, there's probably some quite good things in insurance and lessons from insurance that can go towards banks as well as the other way. But, of course, banks have had their ICAP capital uh, for a little bit, uh, for a couple of years now. And one of the interesting features is what made, when you're trying to bring in and change risk culture within a bank to, to sort of pick up the ICAP requirements, what are some of the key things that you need to get right? And this is, this is what this slide's all about, because these are probably things that you need to get right in insurance as well. 
And the first thing is it's got to become business as usual as quickly as possible. If it's something that's done away over there by a group of people behind a closed door, it's not really changing the culture. So the challenge is how you actually get the, 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 this embedded in how people think about their business. Now, in the UK, we've had this phrase embedding the ICAs since uh, about 2003 as well. Um, and in the UK, another friend of mine, Alistair Clarkson, who ran the ICA team when I was working with the, I was the assistant to the actuary, um, we were charged with sort of doing this embedding the ICA project. And so what we set about doing was having evidence that at every major financial decision that was taken in the insurance companies of Standard Life, the ICA played a part. So it, we could trace it that it played a part in the product pricing, played a part in the capital constrained under the EV reporting, it played a part in any investment decisions, uh, disinvestment of subsidiaries and things. We had the ICA there. But it wasn't always clearly signaled. If you'd gone to the marketing guys and said, what's the ICA? The, the actuaries hopefully would have known, but the rest of them wouldn't. Um, if you'd gone to the investment guys with the benchmarks they were given and said, tell me how this related to the ICA, they wouldn't be able to tell you. So, and that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't pass muster now. You can't pass the use test without people knowing that they're using the model, if you like. So you need to sort of make it more explicit. And of course, as actuaries, we love to talk about the model. Great, I will tell you all about the model. Well, that's a three-hour workshop on equity and credit stressing. I mean, but senior management aren't interested in that. So one of the, the other things that you'll have seen if you've read, read the stuff that I've put in the act chain, what have you, um, is I mean, the importance of us as actuaries being able to develop the softer skills, particularly the communication skills, to be able to get over to people who don't want technical lectures enough of the technicalities that you know, they really understand what's going on well enough to satisfy regulatory requirements and also be able to put effective challenge to the proposals that you're putting to the board. So this transformation to business as usual is really, really important. Um, and it's interesting, I don't know where some of you are in all of this, but certainly when the ICA came in uh, in the UK, we spent years discussing the technicality of the ICA. We don't do that now we talk about using the ICA. We've kind of moved on. We still have technical discussions, but you know, they're, not, they're not the be all and end all anymore. It's using the thing that's important. But of course, it's not just you being able to use it, but it's your next generation being able to use it, and it's your supervisor being able to understand what you've got. So documentation is so, so important. Um, uh, probably an awful lot of trees have needlessly died, though, in the, um, the quest for documentation. Because actually the important thing about documentation is that it is worth reading and accessible. And if you write 25-page documents when you, all you needed to say was yes, you know, um, then it may not, maybe that, that was probably erring too much on the, the side of detail. So again, there's been a, an art in developing, you know, documentation writing skills. And I mean, this came... This, those of you who, who report stuff into the UK will be familiar with the Board of Actual Standards, uh, TASAS. Of course, the BAS is no more. Uh, TASAS are set by the FRC board, and there's an actual council that advises. Well, for my sins, I sat on BAS for about two and a half years. But don't blame me for TASAR. That was done before I joined. But you'll see that I've signed the other one, so you can blame me for them. Um, but the thing about TASAR is, and, and the earth-shattering thing, 
And maybe I'm just showing you how far behind we, the UK is from you guys because you're much more alert on this. But I think and, um, you know, one of the key things that Tazar brought in was the notion of the user. So in fact, actual reports aren't about me anymore. They're about the person who reads it. And that's a bit of a shock because it's now about communicating. It's not, oh, they didn't understand it. That's their fault. No, it's your fault. Your report's bad. If they don't understand it, you haven't passed Tazar. And that's been a kind of a mindset change in life offices, and I think a helpful mindset change in my view. So documentation is not, I mean, it's very much, you know, very important how you communicate to the user, but it's also have you got robust documentation behind the scenes that shows what you've done and that you know what you've done and you know why you did it. And uh, one of the things I do now is I'm reviewing actuary and audits, and it's quite interesting to see the standards of documentation that some people have. Um, so we haven't quite got there yet, but we've certainly made good strides. The last thing is really important is not to underestimate the challenge of implementing the thing in the first place. Writing your first ORSA report is a big task, particularly if you wanted to make it quite an inclusive document and pulling together stuff that wasn't already there. And so actually having recognizing this is a big task, having proper program management, proper assessment of the resources that are going to be needed, and freeing them up to do it. But making sure that they know what they're doing is also terribly important. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure you won't have made the mistake that some life officers in Britain did, and that was when they were really needing solvency to help, you know, you'd be, you'd be quite easy to pick up contractors at vast sums a day, independent contractors, who are solvency to experts, um, though I'm not sure there were any solvency to experts, but they certainly could spell the word, so they were then, that was on their CV. And then they would do gap analyses on legislation uh, that would then be sort of, you know, which would almost sort of generate more work than necessary. Now, I'm not saying that every gap analysis is bad, certainly not. But sometimes what, gap analyses are great, provided you understand how the new words compare to the old, because a lot of these require interpretation and judgment. And so what we, you know, you, you know, I heard of cases where people were reading the new, which was very similar to the old, but see, re, reading the new in a different way and then thinking there was much more work to be done than actually needed to be done if they'd had the people who were making the judgments about compliance more involved in the gap analysis. So if you make your program too big, then you run the risk of spending a lot more money than you need to. But if you don't have a proper program, then that probably spells disaster. It's interesting, one of the things I learned quite quickly when I joined consultancy was that um, you know, when I'd been in standard life, if somebody had a new task for me that needed to be done, that was a challenge that I would rise to. And that was the mindset in my team, roll up your sleeves, we can do it. Whereas when you're in a consultancy and a client has got a particular issue, you know, it's not just good intentions that the client wants. They want comfort that it will be done, and they want to know roughly how much it's going to cost. And that requires a plan. And so planning is a great thing. I just wish I'd done it more, actually, if I confess it. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this in case of my ex-colleagues here. But I do think that you know, planning is something that actually is it's, it's boring. It's, 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 um, it's not quite as much fun as just getting into the heat of battle. But actually, it does work. But I still see in situations where people, they just do not plan. They jump into doing it too soon. And then they are arriving late, producing it late and not to the desired quality. Well, if we did that, we wouldn't have clients. Could be, they just wouldn't accept that. So maybe that sort of discipline is quite helpful. So those are, uh, maybe you've learned those lessons and you think, 
sudden move on. So I will, but those of you, for that's new, well worth it. It's really important. It's got to become part of your culture. It's got to be well recorded, well communicated, and recognizes a big task to get it done to start with. And the thing is, it's not just Europe that's talking about ORSA, and it's not just South Africa that's talking about ORSA. Throughout the world, people are talking about ORSA because of this thing called the ComFrame Initiative. And this is the IAIS, the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, which is about 120 or something. So of that order, throughout the world, these are the different regulatory bodies who all meet together and are developing this notion of what does best practice look like in a regulatory regime. And then the plan is that they'll all be able to say, by I think about 2018 or something, that their regime is compliant with the COM frame, that therefore they're modern regulators with a good system and they can feel good about themselves. Now this diagram is not from COM frame. It was one of my Swiss colleagues who did it. And I thought it was quite a cute diagram to sort of you know, encapsulate you know, all the different things that you're trying to bring together. Uh, you know, and the ORSA is really about the ERM, the Enterprise Risk Management Framework, which has got to be group-wide, particularly uh, in the, the ComFrame proposals. Uh, and here are just some of the other the features of it. And um, so here's a kind of a, a summary of the 2013 document. So this document came out at the end of last year, um, of proposal, or towards the end of last year, um, from the AI, uh, IAIS uh, on what they saw this own risk insolvency assessment being. Now this is something that's aimed particularly at IAIGs. There's going to be a quiz at the end of all these abbreviations. Uh, IAIG stands for Internationally Active Insurance Group. Um, I'm looking at Ian to confirm this. I don't think they've actually been listed yet. Is that right? Okay, that's great. And I'm sure Cape Town didn't hear any of that. And, you, and Cape Town, you are the poorer for that. That was Ian Marshall of the regulator here giving us a good summary of internationally active insurance groups. And as one of these, it's a self-assessment at the moment, though presumably the, your regulator will tell you. But if you've got more than 50 billion of assets, I presume that's, is that dollars or sterling? Sorry? US dollars, 50 billion. I don't know how many around that is, but it's an awful lot more than 50 billion. It's probably another, put a zero on it, and that'll do, I would imagine, or something of that order. Um, and if more than 10% of your business is outside your country, then you could be heading for IAIG status and all the extra requirements that, that, come, that will come with that in due course. Of course, there are some institutions who are already globally systemic insurers, uh, and they've got all of this and more to, to think about. But the idea here is that for the biggest, start with the biggest players because they're probably the biggest risk to, to policy or just in terms of numbers and they should all be having ORSAs. That's the plan. And, and the ORSA in ComFrame is going to be group-wide. Uh, it's got to be embedded in the business. 
much the same as Orsa. It's got to consider, I like this, all foreseeable and relevant risks on a group-wide basis. That feels quite a tough thing, actually. But then, actually, I'm sure we're up for it. We just need to be thinking, you know, what, what is foreseeable? How would we go about that process? That's not impossible. Um, and then I think, but also there's a link into the risks arising from the business strategies of the firm. And then you've got this sort of feedback loop. We used to call that the actual control cycle. Um, and now it's part of ORSA. But it's still a good thing to do to review, you know, what's happened and does that change your assessment on the way through. For those of you who like the detail, then there's a whole list uh, from the proposals of the sorts of things that an ORSA should, con should cover. And if you look along that, what you'll find is it's very similar to what an ORSA should cover. And uh, if you really want the detail, then that's the detail. Um, thanks to Philip Keller, a colleague in Switzerland, for all of that. But let's move on. We're on the home state now, you'll be glad to know. Those of you who think, when is this guy going to stop? The answer is fairly soon, but not yet. Um, so we've talked a little bit about what's going on in Europe. I hope you found that useful just to understand the sort of the psyche of what your, your colleagues in Europe are having to put up with uh, in Solomonsy 2 and what we've grappled with. Um, but what, what's also happening is that, you know, as you've got to have an international view when you're an actuary in insurance. Because it's not just what's going on in Europe, and it's not just what's going on in the IAIS, but it's what's going on in the Financial Stability Board as well. And, um, so, and when you look, they've been also writing about uh, risk governance. And um, you know, I think it's actually chaired by the, the current chair of the Bank of England, Mark Carney. So I suppose in, U in the UK, we should be particularly aware of all that they're doing. But you know, here are a couple of documents. Again, if you're stuck for CPD or stuck for things to do in the evening, then these are documents probably, I mean, seriously, they are, they are actually worth reading. In fact, this bottom one, the PRA's approach to insurance supervision, you know, we're, we're kind of told with the PRA that's more or less mandatory reading for us. If you've got dealings with the PRA, then they've set out their stall on how they want to relate to the firms they supervise. So they're expecting the firms to read it. And, um, and the, the sort of themes that come in there is don't expect to be told what to do. Don't expect lots of detail from us. You're going to get less from us. You're going to have to think more. That's slightly my paraphrase, but that's the gist of it. And of course, that's good for some mindsets, but it's actually quite drafty for others. Um, but that's the way, because it's all about you taking more and more responsibility for what you're doing with your balance sheet and you doing with your business model. But one of the things that I wanted to highlight here was the second one down there, the principles for an effective risk appetite framework. Uh, I first used this slide in, um, in Hong Kong in uh, November. And then I gave the talk again at, on the way back at, from Australia. I went to Hong, Hong Kong for a day, then I went to China for a day, then I went to Australia for three days, then I went back to China for two days, and then I came home serving you as the actual profession. Hope you appreciate that. But I got to talk to these slides twice. Uh, the talk was not the same any time as you'll have gathered. When you don't have any notes, you tend to sort of go off piste slightly. Um, but unfortunately, since I, since I got this slide done, um, the, the FSB did the dirty on me, and they actually produced not just uh, a consultation paper on principles for an effective risk appetite framework, but an actual policy statement. That came out in November, at the end of November, and I'm afraid I haven't updated the slide. So I wouldn't read the July 2013 one, I'd read the November 2013 one, uh, but I don't think they're that different, but I would read the up-to-date one. 
And the key thing there is on the, the just this is up on the left hand slide here. Um, what the FSB, the great service, I mean, see, I think this, the great service they've done is they're bringing a consistent set of definitions to all these concepts. Because when the first idea of risk appetite came in, you could have a great discussion over lunch on what appetite actually meant, you know? And what happened, you know, is appetite what you eat before you feel full, or is appetite what you feel, and you know you've reached it when you then do feel full, and you can have all these pointless discussions, but great fun over lunch. But actually, what the FSB, this is our paraphrase on, this is not their words, but I would recommend that you actually you look at their words and, and use them in many cases, because you know, this is the, the sort of the standard mindset that they've got. And the idea here is you've got risk capacity, which is the amount of risk that you can actually take before you breach your regulatory requirements. And then the idea is that you're not going to run the business at full tilt all the time, otherwise you'll end up on the far right-hand column of this diagram. This is a diagram that we've used particularly in banks. It doesn't quite lend itself as well to insurance when you get down into the detail of things, but it's quite nice for the purpose of just sort of illustrating the concepts, and that's really all I'm trying to do here. That, you know, if your risk profile is more than your risk capacity, then you're, you're the regulator will be very interested in you, and you're probably not there anymore because the regulator has already taken over. But if you're in a position where your profile is so, so much less in your capacity, then your shareholders won't be that impressed either. So you're a rock-solid institution, but nobody wants to invest in you. So you probably want to have a position where you're taking some risk, and not too much, but enough. And in fact, one of the good things about this sort of framework is it helps you to recognize that, in fact, risk-taking is a good thing. That's, you know, provided you don't take too much or you don't take risks that you don't fully understand in great quantities. So kind of the notion here is that your appetite is what the sort of risk you would like to be taking, the, the sort of the amount you're comfortable taking. And there's probably a lower limit that you don't want to take too little, and there's also an upper limit you don't want to take too much because you don't want to be breaching capacity. It doesn't do your career any good, and it doesn't do your share price any good if the regulators are coming in to run you rather than you. But what you'll probably find is, as well as having the upper and lower appetite limits, you probably want to have triggers because, you know, in your MI reporting, if things are well under control, you don't need to have nearly so much attention to things as if you're getting close to your appetite. So what we find here is there are people who are now sort of saying, well, here's my, you know, I'll have, um, you know, red, amber, and green approaches to risk appetite. And quite often what this has done is it, you know, it's done in terms of, you know, how much capital coverage do you want over your SCR, ICA, 1 and 200 capital requirement? And some people publish this, particularly, you know, when people do um, either demutualizations, you don't get so many of them now in the UK, but still you get the odd one or two, but you certainly get a fair amount of transfers of business from one company to another. And that's got to go through the courts with reports, and that's one of the other things that I get to do. And what you typically do when you're writing an independent expert report is you look at the capital policy of the firm the business is coming from and compare it to the one that the, the business is going to. And not everybody has put that in the public domain, but quite a few have. And what you typically find is that insurance companies, nobody seems to be running at less than 125% of 1 in 200 capital, or their pillar one capital. But some people are running at 150%, that's their target, and some people have a slightly higher target as well. Um, and so what you find then is people are saying, you know, my, so you know, if, if, if your target is you want to run at 150%, 
well, what you might say is, but so long as I'm actually over 100%, I don't, I'm okay because I'm not breaching any regulated requirements, but I'm not comfortable being at 100. I want to be at 150. So some people will have their appetite that they want to, you know, if they're not at 150, if that's their number, then actually they have so many years or whatever to get to 150. And so long as they've got a trajectory to there, then they are within their appetite. That's one of the approaches that we've seen that people are using. Um, when you then get down into much more detail, you know, because that's fine at the entity level, but how does that make you decide whether you want to write more, you know, protection business or credit risky business, like longevity, annuities and this type of thing? What people then start to do is they sort of look down and they, they look to see, you know, the, what is the, the, the shape of the risk bearing capital that they've got, you know, where's the risk needs coming from? Are they comfortable with that sort of mix? Do they want to shift it? If they've got too much of one, too less of another, then that gets reflected in their business plans. And then they can actually start to put numbers around that to say, well, you know, you can't write more than, you know, you know they might not say you can't write more than X million of annuity business. What the appetite might be is you can't have more than, you know, X hundred million of economic capital at risk because of longevity. And it's up to you to use that amount. You could write lots of small annuities. You could write lots of enhanced annuities. You can choose what your strategy is, but that's the limit you can have. Um, so that's what we're kind of seeing in the UK. People are starting to take some of these concepts. Um, and you know, the thing is, risk appetite, they're not, they're not sort of um, optional anymore. They're really part of a sort of a, you know, they're expected of good risk management. Um, Here's just a typical consultant slide, sorry about that, but you always want to have some sort of circle, nice diagram and some good bullets down the side. But actually it's quite helpful this. I mean this used to be called the actual control cycle, it's now called a good ERM framework. But essentially it's the same sort of thing, you know, you, you set your strategic plan, you set what you're trying to do, you communicate that round the business, you then monitor what's going on, you do whatever you need to correct things, bring things back into line, and then you probably reassess your your, your approach to quantification uh, with another year's worth of data, and you probably reassess whether you're, you're comfortable with your strategic plan and the business model of the firm. And down the right, down the left-hand side, rather, of this slide is just re-emphasizing the importance nowadays that you know a risk appetite framework will not be called good if you can go in and find senior management who cannot articulate it. It doesn't matter if it's implemented and all working wonderfully. If people don't know that it's going on, then it won't be re meeting the requirements. These next two slides, I won't go through them all. I'll leave them for you to read. The attraction, the, the, we've got a, a whole team of people uh, in the UK. We've got this center, European Center for Regulatory Strategy. And it's a chap I first came across in the FSA when he was the insurance sector leader, a guy, David Strack, and he's one of the, the key partners in it. And so a team of people who go through all the different regulatory material, you know, throughout Europe and, uh, and, and link into some more international stuff and try and sort of see what are the themes coming out and what does it mean for firms. And what we've got here is some of the key themes and pulling out from different documents. So here's the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision talking about, you know, the importance of governance of the board setting the risk appetite, uh, you know. Uh, then you've got in strategy, here's the PRA, which is the Prudential Regulator in the UK, you know, saying that, you know, a firm's risk appetite has got to be central, integral to its strategy. Yeah. So, there's, you know, so we'll go through. I don't, I'm not going to read them all out, uh, but it's covering things like culture, incentives, 
Um, you know, having a common risk appetite language, senior supervisors group, that's one of the other sort of uh, affiliations of some of the key regulators. And I think the Financial Stability Board's risk appetite framework paper I've referred to meets some of that. Um, and then scope. One of the key things in ORSA actually is ORSA's got to be done at entity level. That's a bit of a pain if you run your group in a management structure that's not the same as the entities. Now, I had to live with that in standard life, you know, and it's not easy um, because you actually want your, you, you really want to communicate in a way which is most relevant to management. So you want to do it in line with the management lines, not in line with the entities. But the regulation is in line with the entities because each entity has got to cover its, its own requirements and things. So actually, there's a bit of duplication there, uh, but then there's maybe scope for... Uh, realigning the, the entity structure sometimes uh, to, to bring it more into line with, uh, to streamline the reporting. And we've seen that in the UK, people actually getting rid of legal entities just to save cost as Solvency 2 comes nearer. Um, these are, this is a kind of a, a sort of a, a quick summary of what the FSB is saying you should have in a good risk appetite framework. But rather than work through that, this is my last slide, you'll be glad to know. Uh, actually, there was a question slide afterwards. This is my last slide with anything sensible on it. And this is, these are some good questions you might want to ask yourself. You know, what we've pulled out here is, you know, um, what's a good risk appetite framework from a, well, we did our best, but we're on a journey risk appetite framework, you know? And, you know, so how broad is it? So is it covering the ones that are easy to quantify? Because if you've done that, congratulations, but you've got more to do. You know, risk framework's got to cover financial and non-financial risks. So that's the FSB saying that, but you've also seen it in Comframe saying that, and ORS is also talking about this holistic approach. In terms of the depth of it, you know, is it so bland that it doesn't make any difference? You know, I mean, risk appetite statements are a bit of an art form to write, but if they don't actually tell you what you can or cannot do, then they haven't gone far enough. You really want an appetite statement that stops you doing things. That, you know, that would show it was a good one. Um, in terms of language and culture, if you were to go into your office and go to a senior manager in finance and ask them about risk appetite, what would they say? And if they weren't able to give roughly the same answer as a senior, management in, a senior manager in marketing was to give, and if that wasn't roughly the same as the senior manager in risk would give, you've got work to do, basically, you know, because it's not passing the, the, the culture test embedded in the business. Now, of course, one of the key things is, is it driven from the top? And I've seen situations where, you know, the finance director did not buy into it and therefore virtually nothing happened, you know. So it's got to be driven right from the top so that people really see that it matters to the, to the people making the, the top decisions. So, you know, they need to, need to abide by it as well. Can you give examples of decision making? Um, you know, if you cannot reel off lots of examples, then it sounds like there's a little bit more work that needs to be done there. The last bit, I'm not sure many people have got to remuneration yet. Uh, that's probably going to come, but while people are still arguing over quantification, that's it's quite a brave firm that would bring that in. Uh, you know, but certainly what you're wanting is to find some way, and balanced scorecard is probably, you know, still one of the ways that people are doing. Um, but I mean, it, it will come, I think, 
Um, I mean, I can think of one, one firm in the UK, and uh, it's interesting. No matter who you speak to in senior management, they actually all say the same thing on what's really important to the business. I think that's quite incredible, and that shows that they've really, that's been, because it's been driven from the top, and that's the key message, and people recognize it and work with it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that, uh, you know, a genuine risk appetite framework will have that feature. So there is the last slide. You get to see the nice crest again. Um, and we're now going to be brave, and we're going to try and get questions, not just from here, and there's a roving mic here so that Cape Town can hear, but Cape Town have got some roving mics so that we can hear. And unfortunately, I've got a microphone here, which means I've got to try and answer the questions. Uh, I'll do my best to, but I can't promise. So, Peter, are you going to chair this bit of um, the Q&A? I think before we sort of start, can we just sort of test uh, Cape Town? Um, is there a microphone there? Can you hear me loud here? Yes, we can hear you perfectly. That's, uh, that sounds great. Um, I think the way I'll do it is I'll let David stand in front of the camera. I'll stand to one side, um, and then Doe, maybe you can like, make a noise or something if there's a hand up for a question on your side. Okay. okay. Um, but and on this sort of side, yes, we've also got a got a roving mic. So. Okay. okay. Great. Well, maybe what we should do is we should ask Cape Town to start with. Um, who'd like to ask the first question in Cape Town? And the reason I'm looking over to my left is that's where the screen is, and we can see in the dim and distant uh, in the sort of a, there's a dim image of people. It looks like, but no hands up. Uh, which seems a shame. That's fine. Oh well, sorry, Cape Town. You've had your chance, okay? But no, if you want to, you have. Hey, tremendous! Off you go. This way. Does, does anybody watch the Graham Norton show on the telly? It feels a wee bit like that, doesn't it? Okay, right. I don't have a red chair if it's not a good question. But but carry on. Sorry, Cape Town. The floor's yours. Okay, um, thanks very much. Uh, I think if it's one page, it's probably too short. And if it's 3,000 pages, it's probably too long. Well, I didn't answer the question. Sorry, I don't... Well, you see, what, what we're finding is, is that people are still, to some extent, people are doing ORSA as part of their Solvency II preparations. And what they're then doing is they're sort of using existing risk reports and then supplementing them by something which then says, and that completes the ORSA. So we can think of one, one uh, you know, sizable insurance company, and you know, they don't have a document which is, this is the ORSA. You know, that covers everything. What they've got a document is they've got a document that describes where all the components of the ORSA are located, um, but it's not all in one document. Now, that may or may not be really in the spirit of ORSA. I'm looking at Ian, he's trying not to catch my eye, but don't try that in South Africa, I think would be my advice on that one. Um, if there's any help, my, my standard life, first time ORSA, I think, came in under 40 pages. And that was light touch on governance stuff, 
the, the one at group that we wrote that included everything, that was at least 100 pages, I think. Um, I think that the thing, though, is it all depends. You know, you've got to think, you know, what does the board want in your company? Now, interestingly, um, in standard life, uh, the rule was you had to four pages for board papers. So, of course, you know, one school of thought was, oh, that's fine. I'll write a summary paper on top of the long paper that I would just, I've always written, and I'll keep writing. So some people did that. I didn't feel that was, you know, particularly sympathetic to the board. So what I tend to do was I would write four pages. So my ORSA was four pages long with lots of appendices. And, uh, <laughs> and that's how I got to 40. Because I'm not sure you can really do it all in four pages. That does feel light. But actually, if you can, I remember, this is not, sorry about all these anecdotes. I hope they're helpful. But the first ICA I produced, I was really quite excited about. Sad, I mean, actually, I get excited about these things. And what we've done is we, in those days, this was 2007. It was the first ICA, I think, after the, the firm had demutualized. Really, we really all keyed up for this and it was my first as the AFH and we'd arranged a board workshop beforehand so we had a three-hour workshop in the morning we then break for lunch and then we'd have the board meeting that would accept the ICA and I met two of the directors in the basement car park that morning I said what did you think of the report then you know yeah it was okay David and I said, was that all is that all you could say and they said well where was the lift lobby slide this guy was of Australian extraction and I said, lift lobby slide? I said, yeah, you know, the slide that summarizes the whole thing. And I kind of felt, you can't summarize my beautiful ISA or ICA in one page, you know. But actually, by lunchtime, we did have the lift lobby slide put in. And I'm a firm believer in that, that if you cannot say in a nutshell what this is about, bang, 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 you don't know it well enough, you know. So, and, and so, you know, you've also got to think about your audience. And so the chief executive wasn't going to read the whole thing, I don't think. So the first half page of page one was the executive summary, and that was written for David. And then the next couple of pages, they were written for Jackie and the other people on the board who would take a little bit more. But it, and so really in four pages, we kind of got the key points over about the risk framework of the firm, the key risks, and what was being done about them. And then we had several appendices. There was one about the governance, who did what, the decision-making process. We had one about the sort of the, 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 the static balance sheet and the relative sizes of different risks. We had another one about projected capital and the conclusions to draw from them. And then we had another one about management actions. And I, I hate, one of my pet hates is when you get a report and you read it in the executive summary and then you get into the report and then you read the same text again but with two more sentences and you've got to try and find what the two more sentences were in a paragraph, you know? So I try and avoid having repetition. So, you know, you tell them it in the exec summary, then in the rest of the paper you tell them additional stuff to the exec summary and then in the appendices you tell them additional stuff to the additional stuff from the exec summary. So there's not a lot of telling the same thing over and over again and losing impact in that. So I suppose that's a long way of saying it's going to depend upon the risk profile of your firm. If it's a relatively simple firm, you won't need 300 pages. If it's relatively complicated, then you probably can't afford to have 300 pages because you won't see the wood from the trees. I would be trying to come in that. My gut feel is I would be trying to get it to 50 pages or less, but recognizing that depending on how much detail you go into, it would be more, you know. Uh, now, Ian, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, well, okay, well, actually, 
if I said 50, okay, if I said 50 to 100, would that mean, let, would that be more comfortable? I mean, I think it's really got to be, it's got to be, have you communicated what was important? You know, that's the thing. And if you've got a lot of difficult things that need to go in, then they probably need to, it probably feels to me that it might not be in the central report, it might be in an appendix. Because certainly I can't remember 50 pages of a report when I read it. You know, and you're trying to get the board to play an active role in this. So I would encourage you to get it as short as possible, but with enough then graduated detail and supporting material that genuinely, I mean, you've got to have enough, as short as possible, but still sufficient, and then sufficient detail for the people who need to dig into it. But again, not so much that you've swamped them. And I think, I can think of some actually that I used to work with in a past life and actually they would swamp, you know, and they were just unable not to swamp, and that's not good communication. I didn't catch your name, Miss Cape Town, so do you want to, was that okay, or do you want to have a reply? All right, so I didn't catch your name, sorry. All right, okay. Thanks very much then. Have we got any other questions from Cape Town before we move on? I think I'm being mocked by my friends here in Johannesburg. <laughs> but I'm old, I'm slightly deaf, and I've also just been in a plane. So, um, Okay, any other questions from Cape Town? Um, it seems like I'm from the floor, and when it's earlier, I wanted to ask a question. Okay. So, when a company first sets up an OSA and a risk appetite statement. Have you seen that it significantly changes decisions that, manage, that management makes? Great question. Um, I think the answer is yes and no, and it depends what risk appetites you set. When we first set risk appetites in standard life, in, when Group Risk did them in the mid-2000s, Basically, the appetites were all set above what the ICA risk capital was for every risk. So they weren't going to change anything at all. Um, but I can think of other appetites, you know, when you actually stood back and you thought, and one particular uh, situation was, you know, in terms of reinsurance exposure. Uh, and once you start to decide how much reinsurance exposure you wanted to say uncollateralized or whatever, and you compare that, say, to your dividend, and you decide, oh, I don't want to have more than half my dividend at risk or more than 100% of my dividend at risk, that then might actually change your strategy. Um, and certainly, when the ICA was first brought in, and this is, this is in the public domain, again, uh, from Standard Life, you can see I sort of ingrained in my mind that the time was spent there. It's a happy time, but some significant challenges uh, for a with-profits office with a lot of equities. And... When we had, for a while, we had a risk uh, group financial, uh, group CFO, um, who was not from a, an insurance background. Um, this lady had come from retail background. And um, the ICA was key to helping, you know, all the different technical and non-technical senior management discuss the risk profile of the firm. Because the minute you put one in 200 numbers on different risks, and you discover that half your risk profile is equity risk on your with profits book, boy, does that concentrate the mind. And so, in fact, that, that just producing the number, there wasn't even a risk appetite, it was just producing the numbers, saying to people, do you realize just how big the, risk, the equity exposure on the with profits book is? You know, that, that was all it needed 
for a major hedging program to be put in place that brought that down to roughly, uh, sort of more or less half the significance of equity risk. Um, you know, so I think the, actually the, one of the key things to me has probably come out is, it's actually understanding your business model and how your business actually makes money is the first step to developing a risk appetite framework. You know, because then you're actually understanding the financial dynamics of your balance sheet and what you're trying to do in your business model. And then as you start to stand back and say, well, you know, <clears throat> risk, the good thing about one in 200 or one in 20 year or one in 10 year, some people even use one in five year uh, scenarios to drive their shorter term uh, risk parameters. These things, you know, once you see, you know, a one in five year event in longevity will do this to me, one in five year event in critical illness will do this to me, in mortality, in credit will do this to me. Can I live with that? Because if it's one in five years, then it could actually happen this year. And it's probably going to happen while I, before I retire, you know. So am I comfortable? If I'm not, then I need to change my risk exposures. That says I don't like my risk appetite is less than my risk exposure just now. And so I think really... The, yeah, I think it's probably um, bringing in appetites that change the risk strategy and change the business model. I think you'd have to say, well, what was the, the sort of the story that got you there? And I would have thought that, um, you know, there are some people when they see the risks that they're running, they won't like them and they will stand back. I can think of examples where that has happened. Um, but it's really been more the discovery, it's the quantification and, of the risk exposure and the recognition as it dawns that then drives the appetites and the appetites are being set deliberately to lead to some change because people don't like the status quo. Okay. Thanks, Thanks Dave, for questions from Cape Town. Are there any questions in Johannesburg? Thanks, David. Rob Rosconi. Um, I think proportionality, which has received a lot of discussion here, is a little bit of a red herring because principles are principles. But I am curious to know how well small life insurers and most of the non-life insurers um, in the UK have managed these changes. Thanks. That's another good question. Thanks. Um, I think, again, uh, proportionality is interesting. I can think of one firm that interprets proportional as being proportional to their resources for dealing with it. Uh, and that's not, that's not the name of the game. It's quite hard to get them to recognize that, mind you. Um, but proportionality is written large over lots of European because of the, there's so many small companies think in Fren France, like that. there's lots of mutuals and there's a worry that there'll be too great a weight of supervision on that. But, I mean, the key thing here is, do you or do you not understand your business? If it's a material risk to you, you should know about it. Um, you know, it's nothing to do with the size of your company. It's to do with the significance of the risk. Uh, and I think m that's probably dawning on people more. Um, but I think, you know, I can think of, there's one mutual um, just now, and, uh, you know, the, their ICA calculation is not good enough. It was certainly done more than proportion, it was probably in greater proportion than the, than the effort. It was quite a scramble to produce it, but the regulator doesn't think it's good enough, and they're having to redo it. And what we have is this notion of Section 166 reports. I think you have them here too. I don't know what, what you call them, but Section 166 is where the regulator demands that an insurer 
gets an independent person to do a review, a skilled person's review of something. And that used to be the kiss of death. You know, you'd really committed a cardinal sin and it was hushed tones of section 166. But nowadays it's, it's quite common actually. In fact, insurers are being told to expect them. Which is, of course, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, it's great news for consultants because you get to see lots of interesting things. Um, and hopefully it adds value to firms. But I guess here's a small company and it just wasn't good enough. Idea is proportionality. No, they have not done a good ICA. It's got to be redone. And the test is, you know, is the document good enough, the documentation, for somebody who doesn't know the business to be, and doesn't know the systems to be able to reproduce the ICA? And, um, you know, I think that's, I hope that's not <clears throat> bad news for small companies. But if small companies are doing lots of complicated risks, then they're actually big problems rather than small problems. Um, but I think you, where proportionality is really important is in recognizing, does it matter? Because the actual, there's an actual trait which says, if it can be analyzed, it's going to be analyzed really thoroughly. Even if I'm arguing over whether it's 10,000 or 11,000 rand for the reserve, I'm going to analyze it. You know? But to be honest, that's probably not proportional to the risk. So it's getting your mindset around that. But actually, but I mean, again, I can think there are people who just say, oh, it's not material, which is code for it's going to be reasonably small. I have no idea how small it will be, but I don't have time to look at it. Well, the trouble with that when you're an auditor is that, you know, materiality is a cumulative thing and you can have lots of immaterial things, but if they add together the material, you've got a material issue. But if you've liberally said it's not material, it's not material, it's not material, then you have absolutely no idea whether you've reached materiality or not. So, um, you know, uh, there's proportionality and proportionality. Any other questions? I appreciate we're getting quite close to six o'clock. So one more uh, from Ian. And for those of you in Cape Town who can't see, it's Ian Marshall about to get his own back on me, but that's all right. I'm about to lose a friend off my Christmas card list, but I hope not. Uh, hi, hi, Dave. Um, it's actually not a question, but more, more of a comment. Um, but, but before I give the comment, just to, to say thanks for the very good uh, talk and uh, insightful uh, presentation that you uh, presented. Uh, the, the comment is really just a heads up to, to everyone out there. Um, I mean, Dave's been talking about how important the author is and uh, you'll be very glad to know that um, uh, in the pipeline coming up, uh, just to do a bit of marketing from, uh, from our side, uh, we've got the Pilichu follow-up exercise. Now, uh, as you all know, uh, we did the Pilichu exercise uh, over 2012-2013 and one of the main points was that a lot of the companies are feeling unprepared for the author. So following up from that, uh, we will be quite shortly uh, setting out a questionnaire uh, which deals with a lot of the issues um, around ORSA. Um, so please uh, look forward to that and please give it the, the time and the attention that it deserves. So sorry for the marketing. but I don't know whether that counts as CPD or not. You've already just destroyed two minutes of CPD. No, that's helpful. <laughs> Helpful. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, well, well, good luck with the debate on the ORSA. Um, I'll be really interested to, um, 
to to watch how it gets on actually because I mean it's um you know the uh, you know it's good for actually to share share good share issues but also share best practice uh, across the different jurisdictions because you know there's there's an awful lot of common ground that we've got and it's good to to share that so thank you for listening and uh, yeah look forward to chatting to some of you over some drinks thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. Before you disappear off, we've just got a small gift to thank you for what is, I think, a really informative sort of talk and really, you know, sort of conveys the, the, the long experience you've got of actually really doing these things. It just really sort of comes across from your anecdotes. So we've just got a small thing from the Actuarial Society. Thanks. I think... That was Pete saying, I'm old. So and I think you're probably true. You know, that if you've got experience, that's called age. But, um, but yeah, it's funny. Um, a lot of these things you actually only do learn by going through them. And that's, again, one of the really important things, that within the actual network throughout the world, we need to be sharing with each other more and more. So I look forward to some articles from South Africa in the Actually magazine talking to us about your experience of Sam, because I'm sure that would be of relevance to the rest of us. But thank you for this very kind of you, and thanks for listening. <laughs>